Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We are, we are taking the holiday off, um, and we are re-releasing an episode that we think is, is one of our best and one of our most memorable. One of, the, one of the themes that we return to frequently on this show is this puzzle that in the U.S., the politicians tend to be pretty extreme, but the voters are pretty moderate. And, you know, there's lots of debates as to why this is the case. And we saw that play out in these recent midterms. We saw, we saw lots of extreme candidates, and we saw, on average, mod- relatively moderate candidates doing a lot better, and we saw relatively extreme candidates performing poorly. So if the voters want more moderate politicians, why don't we see more moderate candidates running? That's precisely the question uh, that, that we're going to dig into with this week's re-release, and we're going to be back with a new episode in a couple weeks. So thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Viola Giuda. I'm Anthony Fowler. And I'm Will Howell. And this is Not Another Politics Podcast. All the talk in our politics is about polarization. It's about how we are at each other's throats. And a lot of that conversation has to do with where the electorate is at. And a thing that we've talked a lot about in the show and that we'll continue to talk about is that, you know, in fact, average voters are a good deal more moderate than you would think if all you did was listen to mainstream media and what they have to say about voters. And our producer's given us a hard time on that, by the way. We keep saying that. We keep, we keep asserting that most voters out there are moderate. And so we are going to, at some point, have an episode that is completely dedicated to that, to that question. Exactly. We need to establish the point. But the polarization, as it operates among the mass electorate, is one thing. There's also the polarization that decidedly does exist when you look at elected officials. Republicans and Democrats disagree with each other more today than arguably they ever have uh, when you look at elected officials in Congress and in state legislatures around the country. The Civil War was pretty bad, but... Um, but <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Although not within Congress. During the Civil War, we had... We didn't have much Southern representation in Congress. They ousted them, yes. <laughs> but yes, inter-party disagreements within Congress are at historic highs. There's kind of an open question about why that is. Like, How did that come to be? And why aren't there more moderates coming forward and running for office? So the natural explanation that I hear over and over again in the media is that Voters are just polarized, and uh, given that voters are polarized, polarized candidates run. Only extremists candidate can gather enough support and, and make people excited to show up and vote for them. Does it make really sense? Is it that is it that voters are uh, driving the polarization of the policymakers, or is there perhaps some other mechanism that is responsible for that? Anthony, you spoke to someone who actually has a book who actually we've mentioned on this show many, many, many times, who, who has a very interesting answer to this question. I did. I spoke with Andy Hall, who's our, who's our good friend. He's a professor at Stanford. He wrote a book called Who Wants to Run, which is on exactly these questions. It's about uh, whether or not moderate candidates really do better in elections or not. And if they do, why don't we see more moderates running? There's a lot of interesting stuff in the book, and we had a really, a really fun and interesting conversation. We've talked about you a lot on the podcast. We've we featured several of your papers, and we've talked to several of your co-authors. And you're a good friend, and you're you're a colleague that we respect very much, and we respect your opinion. And you've certainly your research and your views have influenced a lot of what we said on the podcast. So it's actually great. It's long overdue to actually have you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. Long time listener, first time caller, Anthony. Excited to be here. And so the, so we are hoping to primarily talk to you about your book, Who Wants to Run. 
How the Devaluing of Political Office Drives Polarization. So the book is largely about political polarization, something that we, we think about a lot, we talk a lot about on the show, obviously. And you have a really interesting argument that's backed by a lot of interesting evidence that if you, want to, if you really wanted to address political polarization in the US, we should really think about and spend a lot of time uh, trying to do something to change who actually runs for office. A lot of studies on polarization focus on the voters and voting behavior, or they focus on the incentives facing people who are already in office. Why should we instead reshift our focus and think about who, who runs to begin with and changing the kind of person that runs? It's harder than people think to get really important, meaningful shifts in ideological representation. Obviously, politicians lie. Obviously, they take positions opportunistically when they can but you're not gonna get a Bernie Sanders to wake up one day and turn into a Joe Biden or like some other moderate in the same way that you're not gonna get a Joe Manchin to wake up one day and turn into a Bernie Sanders or something like that. There are real constraints, I think, to what people will do when they're in office. And so if you look at lots of other research on how do we get ideological change in Congress or in legislatures in general, we tend to think a lot of it comes through replacement rather than through the adaptation of sitting members' positions. That actually has a bunch of implications for how we might think about polarization. When you look in the data, you start to realize, like, it's not just that incumbents are polarizing. Like, all of the people who run for office look really polarized. And so you might be in a situation where voters actually want to support more moderate candidates, but they're just not getting the chance to. It's not that different from thinking in economics about supply and demand. And as V.O. Key put it, you know, if only rascals run for office, then voters are guaranteed to pick a rascal for office. And I think that some of the, I mean, obviously there's some truth to the fact that polarization has something to do with voters want, but I think there's also a really important part of it that's that voters are getting screwed by the choices that they're being given. There's a ton of interesting uh, empirical work in the book. A lot of it hinges on being able to correctly measure and classify politicians as relatively moderate versus relatively extreme. We, we have a lot of experience doing that for sitting politicians. We can look at their roll call votes in Congress, for example, and say, you know, Bernie Sanders seems to be more extreme than Joe Manchin. How do we do that for electoral candidates? Well, they all raise money. And that's really helpful because logically, while of course a lot of stuff goes on with campaign finance, you know, if I'm an incumbent, who casts a lot of far-right roll call votes, let's say, and I get money from a certain group of donors, it seems pretty reasonable to suspect maybe those donors like far-right ideological positions. And then to make the further leap, and this is the key idea in most of the literature, if I'm a candidate and I get money from those same donors who tended to give to far-right incumbents, then it seems logical again to suspect that's probably a more far-right candidate than other candidates. I mean, one claim that you want to make is that to the extent that there is high and rising polarization over time, at least not all of it is attributable to the voters. It's not the voters' fault that we're in this position. Why, why do we think that? What kinds of, what kinds of analyses can we do that, that help us figure out how much of it is, 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 is the voters' fault? It's, it's tricky. I, there's kind of two, two or three basic things I do. Certainly, none of them are perfect. So the first thing I do, let's look at everyone who ran. And what were their positions in every district for the past 30 years or whatever? And let's ask the question, when you calculate polarization in the legislature as the difference in the you know, ideological scores of the median member of each party, what does that look like for the actual incumbents we elected? And what would, what would it have counterfactually looked like if instead in every single election for the last 30 odd years, voters in each district elected the most moderate candidate in their race? 
when you do a simulation like that, you find something quite remarkable, which is that the amount of polarization in that hypothetical best case scenario for moderation is really, really high. It's almost as high as the level and the growth in polarization we observe with what actually happened in these elections. That suggests to us that there could be this really deep constraint that even if voters wanted to, they don't have a lot of opportunities to, to really reduce polarization through their vote choice. The second part of the argument is then to look at like, okay, what about these rare opportunities when someone more moderate really does run uh, and, and is in a competitive race in a general election? Well, what happens in those unusual cases? And in those cases, the more moderate candidates tend to do quite a lot better on average. The third part of it, we need to find cases where more moderate people than usual ran or something like that. And that's actually really hard to do. What I do for that is I look at these big salary reforms in state legislatures. So state legislatures don't pay people very well in, in general. And so when you raise salaries a lot, you could really change the calculus. I mean, some of the reforms I look at are changes from literally like $40,000 a year salaries to $80,000 a year salaries. What I show is, on average, it seems like those reforms lead to a set of more moderate people running. And when more of those moderate people run, it seems like more of them win and the legislature becomes less polarized. So there aren't a lot of moderates that do run. When they do run, they seem to do well. And so one idea is, okay, why, why, is, it, why is it the case that moderates aren't running at high rates? And you, you noted that when, they, when, when, when you pay more, you get more moderates running. Why is that? Why would we expect that paying legislators more would induce more moderates. I mean, you might think that might just, you know, that would make everybody want to more run, run more, but why does that especially induce moderates relative to extremists? More extreme, ideologically more extreme people care a lot more in some sense about who serves them in office. And in particular, they really don't like when someone from the other party is in office because they're ideologically very distant from that person. And that creates this force that makes a more extreme person just on average kind of more fired up about this. And so when you raise salaries, you do raise that benefit for everyone. But the more extreme people are already more likely to run because they have this ideological kind of like loading that the more moderate people don't. That's the basic idea. A relevant argument it seems like you want to make is that it's not a very good job to be a politician. It's, it's for, for the vast majority of us, it would be fairly unpleasant. I mean, as you start talking about solutions for political polarization, a lot of it just comes down to how can we make this a more appealing job for sensible, moderate people? How can we lower the cost of running? How can we increase the benefits of actually holding office? Uh, my view is these costs have gone up and these benefits have gone down. And so I try to go systematically through them. As I said before, there's no way to measure them altogether. So it's all, you know, an exercise in kind of subjective, qualitative judgment. But the main things I point to are people are raised, they're not just raising more money, but they're raising more money from more donors over time, which suggests and is consistent with anecdotes that they're spending more time doing it than they used to. And they're certainly complaining about it more. Uh, so that's like a big cost that I think has gone up. On the benefit side, of course, the real value of the salaries has gone down because they're not inflation adjusted, but probably much more importantly than that, they're not getting these opportunities inside the legislature to grow their career the way that they used to with the erosion of the seniority system, the, the fact that the party leadership is drafting the bills now, but I have no way to measure the full costs and the full benefits. And certainly other people have argued to me that they think it's gotten easier to run because technology has improved and, and so forth. And I'm, I'm open to that argument. Like Lyndon Johnson had to like drive around the whole state of Texas in his like old car 
replacing the oil every like three days and stuff. And that was really hard. And like, so maybe that's easier. Although now. I think they still do that. I think they still do a lot of driving. <laughs> the like quality this. of the automobile is a lot higher than it used to be. Um, you know, so there are arguments to be made, but th- that's kind of where I stake it out. Let's just talk about salaries. Should, should we just, should we start considering, you know, what if we double the salaries of members of Congress? What, we, what can we say about that? Would that actually induce more moderate, sensible people to run? One, I think in isolation, it probably wouldn't be effective. You know, if we paid members of Congress a million dollars, we might really change who runs and we might not like what we see. It's sort of a weird policy lever to think about in isolation. But second of all, this is the more like complex point that I think is really important is I think we're very much, very much stuck in a really important and not very good trap in the U.S., especially at the federal level, where people think their politicians are terrible. uh, And as a result of that, they think it's crazy to pay their politicians more than they already do. And that in turn is almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I think it's it's fair to say we're like in some kind of trap like that. So it's, that's why I think salaries themselves, probably not that effective for Congress, but like trying to escape this trap requires a bunch of thinking about like how could we reward a whole different group of people that aren't our current sitting politicians so that new and different kinds of people wanted to run in the first place. What do we have to say about how we might reform the campaign finance system in a way that would reduce polarization and make it more make make more yeah. people willing to run? It could be a really damaging system in the sense that it's a race to the bottom where if you know your opponent's doing it and you think it's good for your election outcome, you're both going to end up doing it essentially all of your waking hours because the other because you know your opponent is. Uh, I don't think people should do no campaign fundraising. I think it's important. It's first of all it's one way that we like put up some attempt to kind of filter for people who will, you know, work hard and get over hurdles that are put in front of them. But on the other hand, when you do it at this kind of unconstrained level, we're currently doing it, I think it does give these very bad incentives. So I think ideally, we would kind of like in other race to the bottom type settings, we'd have some kind of regulation that said, you're not allowed to fundraise any more than this. And therefore, you don't need to worry about your opponent doing it a bunch more than you because you're both bound to these rules. And if we could get people to somehow commit to only raising up to some certain amount, I think they have this other potential big advantage, which is like, wow, now I can run for office and I only have to fundraise this like relatively small amount of the time. Have you thought about, you know, ways we could reform our institutions for elected officials in ways that would make it, you know, make it a more desirable job? So for example, you know, if you change the committee system, if you change, you know, things about the institution that made it so that a new legislator could actually accomplish something, would that induce more moderates to run? You know, I think there's an ongoing conversation about legislator capacity that, that basically we need to return to this past era where members of Congress had more money for staff um, and they were more the center of policymaking rather than the party as a whole and the party leadership in particular. When I have this chance to become a legislator and I'm going to get to craft a bunch of my own legislation based on you know help from my own expert staff, and as a re- in part as a result of that, as I get reelected, I'm going to climb through this pretty well-defined seniority system and get increasing levels of prestige, and that's going to help me run for other offices or you know do something successful after I'm a politician and so forth. That's a much more compelling job offer than you're going to show up in this highly polarized legislature. You're going to get these memos from this, 
the speaker saying, you need to raise this much money if you want one of these committee positions. And by the way, if you get on this committee, you're just going to be doing kind of whatever legislation I I decide is important. That's just a much less compelling job, I think. Are there other reforms or potential solutions that we haven't talked about yet that you think are worth mentioning? Yeah, I, I think there's like a perception gap also. I think in a lot of ways, you know, people throw around this phrase, uh, pandemic of misinformation. I think we're in a pandemic of misinformation about a whole bunch of other stuff that, the, <laughs> <laughs> that no one's talking about. I think a lot of more moderate people have been just bombarded with New York Times and Vox explainer pieces about how everyone's so polarized. And it's just, it, a lot of it's not true. Like, there's a lot of voters out there who are not that extreme. I think all of this rhetoric coming out of political science and the policy world that massively overstates how polarized Americans are, I think that's having its own effects on the decisions of people to run. And as a policy matter, I mean, correcting that misinformation, I think, would be could be quite powerful, though I, I'm, really, I'm very open to testing that and discovering that it's not true. That's just a hypothesis <laughs> of mine. And I'll even go so far as to say that in some cases, these arguments are self-serving. In some cases, you get people who themselves are extremist ideologues who are trying to convince everyone else that the public is also full of extremist ideologues. And therefore, you know, we should nominate my preferred candidate for office or we should put forward my preferred policy proposal because it's, you know, and so there's this kind of self-serving part of it, which is very frustrating. So it's a huge problem. And like the average American is not out there talking about politics. They're seeing and talking to people from the other side without even necessarily realizing it because they're talking about the MMA fight that they saw on TV last night. And political scientists are going around thinking that everyone's doing what they're doing, which is talking about politics 24-7 and getting in these huge arguments. And the reality is most Americans hate talking about politics, don't want to argue about politics, and don't. Yeah, I suspect, I suspect most, at least the kinds of most elites and people considering running for office, don't appreciate just how valuable moderation is electorally. I, that's just that's a hunch that I have, and some of it is based on talking to these people, and some of it is realizing the fact that they they're themselves in a bit of a bubble. All the people they talk to are like party insiders who, you know, yeah. Um, I, so yeah, so I think correcting some of those misperceptions, I'm sure, would have a big would have a big impact. I th the thing in that vein that I'm most interested in uh, is this idea about turning out the base, and and you know, I, Dan Thompson and I have published this paper about how more extreme nominees turn out the base. And the really important thing that we found, which is like consistent with theoretical arguments that have been made before, is that be careful what you wish for when you nominate someone you think is going to turn out your base, because they might turn out to turn out the other party's base even more. And we've seen that. And I mean, that's really, I think, in a lot of ways, the story of 2020. Like Trump did turn out a group of Republican voters who don't normally vote, and that was to his benefit, except he turned out way more super dissatisfied Democrats than he turned out his own base. There's a lot more, yeah, there's a lot more to talk about. So one, okay, so one thing I think we should talk about, and I think one, I think, fairly reasonable response to your book would be to say, there's not a lot about primary elections in the book. Um, it's, you've shown us, I think, pretty convincingly that in general elections, voters do prefer more moderate candidates over more extreme candidates. But is it true that primaries are kind of causing polarization? So one, do you have anything to say about that? And two, do you have anything to say about how these kinds of patterns that you're talking about in your book have changed over time, even in recent years, even maybe the last couple of years since you've, since you've written your book? At the time I wrote the book, 
I felt there was pretty strong evidence that in these House primaries, 99% of which received no media coverage, the advantage to being more extreme is way, way smaller than people think. Second thing I would say is it could definitely be changing rapidly. And a reason to think it might have changed is, of course, Trump. A reason to think it might not have changed is just that the way the media covers these primaries is very misleading. They find the one example uh, and then they claim that's happening in every primary. If tomorrow we woke up and a ton of like really highly qualified, more moderate people started decided to enter primaries, the people who turn out to vote in primaries could change. Like the whole system could change in a really noticeable way that would be hard for us to predict. And so um, that I think is an open okay. question. Thanks a lot, Andy. It's great to talk to you. Is there any other last minute things you want to you want to say to our listeners? Or? We'll have you back on, so this isn't your last chance. Yeah, let's do let's do the <laughs> pandemic of misinformation is our next our next <laughs> podcast. That sounds great. This is really fun. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks for having me. So it seems to me that we do agree with a lot of the storytelling that Andy does and, and, and evidence that he shows us. What do we think are the weakest point? Or is there anything that we would model differently or we would maybe find a different explanation for his findings? Well, I mean, I'll throw out a few. A reasonable concern, and Andy does a lot of work to try to rule this out. He's, he's, for, he's forthcoming about it. But I think a reasonable concern about some of the initial findings that we talked about, about moderates doing better, what, what he finds is that when, you know, when a party nominates a relatively moderate candidate, that the party does better in the general election. We don't know for sure from that evidence that it's because of the candidate's moderation versus other things that happen to be correlated with ideological moderation. So if it were also the case that moderate candidates also just are just more competent people in general, maybe they have more business experience, maybe that, you know, if that were the case, then we wouldn't know for sure if it's the fact that if it's just their competence or their experience that's causing people to support them, not their ideological moderation per se. Even if, if you wanted to get into the weeds, there's even kind of a nitty gritty concern, which is that the way that he measures moderation comes from campaign contributions. And you might wonder if you're especially, if you're an especially kind of gregarious person who's a really good fundraiser and you're good at raising money from lots of people, that means you raise more money. You might raise more money from a more diverse set of people. We, I think we actually talked about this exact issue when we discussed Brandis's paper. You know, I don't think this is likely what's really going on here. And I think Andy does a good job of at least considering and ruling out this possibility. But I think he would acknowledge that the evidence doesn't tell you for sure that it's ideological moderation that's causing these candidates to do better. We know that moderates are doing better. We think it probably is because of their ideological moderation. But it could be that moderate candidates also are just, just better and more competent on other dimensions. And that's why they're doing better. Or that they have a different kind of appetite for being in the spotlight, our, our former student who's now a teaching fellow here at the University of Chicago, Shufu, has this work in which he shows that moderates in Congress speak less in public forums in various ways, and it's the extremists who are talking the most. That might be a function of like strategic behavior within the legislature. It may instead be a function of types of people. If you are at the extremes, you get a certain kind of benefit from appearing on TV that just holding office is going to deliver for you. And I think the policy implications would be more or less the same, which is whatever the reason, we know that we know that they're less willing to serve you know, in office than the extremists are. And so we need to find some way to make the job itself more desirable or the cost of running lower. Where you would get a difference, though, in terms of the policy intervention is that, let's say, you passed a rule that said nobody who's running for Congress can appear on TV. 
or something like that. You know, you take away <laughs> right, those right. kinds of expressive benefits, or you say you no longer get to go to rallies, or 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 just the opposite. You increase those, then it would then it would cut differently. I kind of like that idea. Should we uh, should we play around with that possibility? What if? Uh... Well, this is what they do in courts, right? <laughs> I mean, this is, we're really trading off things because, of course, we think there are good reasons. It's a good thing for democracy that there's lots of accountability and people know what's going on in Congress and people know what their member of Congress believes, but. If we could somehow get the media to like report on what they're doing in Congress and give voters information without turning AOC or Kristen Sinema or whoever it is into like a minor celebrity where we're like, you know, we're like, we're following them around and caring a lot about like what dress they're wearing or something like that. I think that would probably be probably be a good thing for democracy for lots of reasons, but it would. <laughs> yeah, but. But the examples that you just raised actually tell me that, that you know, whether you're in the spotlight or not is a little bit endogenous. So AOC is in the spotlight. and But do we really know what uh, cinema has been wearing for the last two weeks uh, while being... Like, like, you know, the, the moderate people in Congress, they don't tend to be extremely visible, at least not in the sense that, you know, an average follower of politics is... is Sometimes not... they get followed into the bathroom against their will... So that's but, so yes. that's clearly a reason but why you might not want to right. Yes, that's I mean, a function that, of them <laughs> being pivotal. That's that their their votes matter a ton, which I uh -huh. think is actually. I mean, it's something we should think about here because when you think about whether or not to ru to run for office, there are these kinds of considerations we've laid out. There's also it's that all right. I'm going to spend all this time. Am I actually going to win? Moderates are more likely to win. Am I more likely to be pivotal? Am I more likely to exercise influence at the margin of, you know, what an infrastructure bill is going to look like? And the answer there is, yeah, you are. We're, we know all this stuff about mansion and cinema precisely because they're where the, it's with them that all the action lies and whether or not this big bill is going to pass. And, and that's exactly why they're in the news. So they, they were not in the news because of what they tweeted and because of what they said until they became important for this particular bill. So yeah, but those, those are two... I mean, not being followed into the bathroom, that, not that part, but being influential seem, would seem to weigh heavily in favor of moderates running. Yeah. Like, hey, if you're a moderate, look, not only are you more likely to win, you're more likely, your votes are more likely to matter in that unmodeled legislative process. If these other factors are nonetheless depressing their willingness to run, they must weigh really heavily. When we think about an, inter in an intervention that might cut directly against it, where I thought you were going to go, uh, Anthony, is to think about the debates that go on within the judiciary or within courts about whether or not to allow cameras in, in the courtroom, right? And the argument for doing so is about transparency, against doing so is because we want to maintain the integrity and dignity of a courtroom and avoid grandstanding. And you could imagine that, well, if, if we put cameras all over the courthouse and had reality TV on Capitol Hill, what's that going to do? If you're a moderate, you say, my God, I don't want anything to do with that, right? If our previous story about moderates as being of a certain kind of type is true. And that what we should instead do is insulate legislators from the public gaze. And that that would make the work more attractive to precisely the people who are more likely to win and more likely to be influential. Again, there's trade-offs. It's worth saying it's not obvious what, what you want because of the trade-offs. We want information. We want accountability. In the Supreme Court, what we have is, is audio recordings. And, and most people, most regular Americans don't just go listen to the audio recordings of oral arguments in the Supreme Court. But presumably, there are lots of journalists that do that, and they write about interesting things that happened. And so I do want to say something about, you're right that the fact that moderates are more likely to win makes it all the more surprising that it's so hard to get them to run. I agree. I, I agree with that. 
it's, it is worth pointing out that the fact that moderates are also more likely to be influential in office, that makes it all the more surprising as well. Although that could also cut in, in, other, in different directions. I mean, given that Congress is so polarized and given that party leaders in Congress often have so much authority, very often moderates might feel like they don't have a lot of power at all, except in the rare scenario like we're seeing in the U.S. Senate where there's exactly 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans and Joe Manchin all of a sudden is quite pivotal for lots of important things that are happening in the Senate. But barring that pretty rare scenario, a moderate might just feel like they have very little influence um, in office because even their party leaders don't listen to them. Of course, the other party doesn't want to listen to them either. They're just one vote out of many. They're not, they, don't get, they don't get important committee positions because they don't go along with the party leaders and so on. So, I mean, you might want to think about what kinds of reforms might you enact to make it so that a moderate can be more influential in office. But given the current polarized system that we have with influential party leaders, I could imagine lots of moderates thinking, I don't want to bother. I'm not going to. I don't right, have that exactly. influence. I may once have, but no longer. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is, and more often than not isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, Capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Can I push back a little bit on something that that it's sort of reasonable to assume that people come with types. I'm either moderate or a conservative, and there's nothing I can do about it. I can see how that, that's probably true, like intrinsically, I, I have my type and I'm not going to change my preferences uh, at a whim, but I can change how I present myself to the constituencies. And clearly, you know, Mitch McConnell or Bernie Sanders or AOC, like there's no way for them to really change how they portray themselves because people would just not believe that. But if you are a first time uh, candidate, wouldn't it make sense, given all this data that we now have, wouldn't it make sense for you to try to pretend that you're moderate? during the first time that you're running. And then once you get in Congress, you unleash yourself. If you run because you're extremist and you want to be in the spotlight, you, you know, knock yourself out, be in the spotlight. If you think you are more influential or if you really won't care about those extreme policies, go ahead and try to implement them. It seems to me that we should see a lot of this kind of things happening at the beginning of the careers. And I wonder whether we do have any research on that or, or you know, anecdotally, whether you think this is not happening. My sense is, I mean, you're probably right that it does happen, and I'm sure you could find, you know, rare cases, interesting anecdotes along those lines. My sense is that it's not very common. And if I had to explain why it's not very common, I mean, there's a, there's a few different explanations I would offer. One is, even if you haven't previously, you know, held elected office before, there's still a lot of information about you. There's still, there are still ways to infer something about your positions, right? You've written op-eds before, you've, depending you on, on where you worked before and what you did. You were on exactly, the podcast for two years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, shoot, I mean, how many people have uh, lost their jobs because we went back and looked at their old, uh, heard their old podcast recording and we figured out what they really thought deep down. So, um, so there's that. There's like, there's still a lot of information about you. Two, I think another argument is you probably just can't help yourself. I'm guessing <laughs> there's no way if you're AOC, you can't pretend to be moderate for like a whole year while you're running for Congress. Like you just, your, your true positions are going to come out one way or, or another. 
And, you know, and then the third possibility is also something that Andy and I talked about in the interview, which is that for a lot of these people, they might have very skewed views about what the public actually wants and thinks. It might be the case that all of their friends are extremist, you know, uh, people in the political world and all the people they talk to are, you know, political fundraisers and party insiders and journalists. And so they actually have this very skewed view. They might actually be convinced that they're in touch with the general public, even though they're not. Um, if I had to guess, I suspect there's some combination of all of those going on. I, I, I want to try a slightly different take on what might be going on. It, it, it's got more than a passing kind of resemblance to the stories we've been telling us far about why moderates aren't running, but it emphasizes slightly different factors. What if we think about moderates as being more pragmatically oriented? If that's true, then rising levels of dysfunction in government, that is, it's not about party leaders exerting more influence and taking discretionary authority away from, you know, moderates. It's a story about just the inability to get much of anything done in Congress, that, that increasingly that's true for all kinds of reasons. To the extent that that's true, then people who are moderate look upon that scene and say, that's not for me. Like, what am I, I'm going to go there. What am I going to get done? Whereas extremists say uh, either, I don't care about getting anything done today because I, I'll have this platform on which to, again, derive all these um, reputational benefits or expressive benefits, um, or to try to shift a conversation about, say, um, entitlements or climate change so that, you know, I can affect meaningful, you know, I'll, I'll get this extreme policy that I want 10 or 15 years out. So it's interesting. So you're saying some sort of initial increase in polarization actually breeds polarization. To the extent, yeah, to the extent that the polarization is the cause of the dysfunction, right? But you could think about other factors as contributing as well um, for why Congress is just, you know, it's a disaster as a policymaking body. I like the story, although, you know, I think, uh, I think the truth is that actually lots of things are still being done in Congress and, and there's still a lot that you can affect. Um, yes, it's increasingly maybe less and less, but on the other hand... It's all at the margin. You know, all the stories that you said previously, how as a, how, how a moderate I, I am more likely to actually, you know, a moderate policymaker is actually more likely, even in this dysfunctional Congress, to get something that they like than an extremist. So, so you know, like it, it could, I can, I can see the story and I actually like it a lot, but, but I can see how it could go the other way. I, I more or less buy the story too. I, th I mean, I think it's interesting. And we had this debate on our podcast about the filibuster and I essentially was saying, I was on the other side of this debate and saying, I don't know, guys, I'm scared. You know, if you get rid of the filibuster and you've got all these extremists in Congress, look at all the crazy things that are going to pass. And your response was, no, maybe you wouldn't have so many extremists if you didn't have the filibuster. And that's a, that's a risk that, you know, I don't, you know, maybe we disagree about it, how willing we are to take that risk or not. But I, I certainly agree that if we could somehow change institutions and the dysfunction in Congress so that an individual member can do more, that should make it more, you know, on the margin anyway, that should make a moderate more willing to run. That would generate the prediction that we should get a lot more moderates running for governor, for example, than for Senate. And I think that is true. I think you do get, you, you do get relatively more moderate governors than you get senators. But nevertheless, you still get lots of extremist, crazy governors too. And so that's kind of the trade-off that, you know, if you make each one of these people more powerful, still some of them are going to be extremists. So there's, you know, there's that trade-off in that filibuster debate. But look, I... I, I you know, the, the, the broad story over the last 50 years in Congress is, yes, rising levels of polarization. And so, too, I think there's a broad sense of rising levels of dysfunction. To the extent that they get anything major done, it's through reconciliation. 
And that as a, a, a way to attend to marginal policy changes that we need to do in light of learning about the failures of past policy and the possibilities of good new policy is, I mean, it's a disaster. It's a, it's a mess uh, as, a, as a way to proceed. When we think about, you know, what does it mean to be a moderate? I think it's about, well, I, I'd, l- I'd like to do some good, right? I'd like to do some good at the, at, the, at the margins as I'm able to today with a very kind of pragmatic orientation about what's possible in in this moment, not playing either a long game or just screaming and hollering because you like it. That's sort of what moderates are about. Congress is not especially, I'm not sure it was ever especially well designed to attend to those kinds of uh, sensibilities, but it's gotten worse. In a sense, you know, you can think of Andy's theory as as a theory of how it all got started. And and I, I guess it would be nice to to, to look a little bit into this question or to go back uh, in time and see how how actually polarization is, is sort of a hard exercise, but how, how the changes in polarization over time also affected then the future um, desire of the moderates or inclination of the moderates to run and, and, and whether you can connect those two issues in a nice way. Yes. Like, are we in this like awful spiral? A little bit of polarization once it gets going... Right. You know how you have this pictures, like the, the, this famous graph of polarization in the U.S. Uh, uh, Congress, and then the, the the price of butter, no, like over time. <laughs> and now maybe we can have this picture of the <laughs> rising polarization and the, the 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 sort of the decrease in the fraction of moderates running, and it will be equally convincing, probably. <laughs> but we have a better story now, <laughs> better theory. <laughs> no, but this is a, but this is a little bit different. No, no, no. I want to. I want to. I don't. I think you're onto something. If I hear you right, Viola, which is not you know, relating polarization to butter. It's to say, once you get, for one, some idiosyncratic reason, a little bit of polarization, that creates a set of dynamics wherein the attraction of the job for the moderate, right, declines. Yes. Which then leads yes. to greater polarization, which then exacerbates the problem even more so. And so there's this internal um, logic to... Uh, the expansion of the rising levels of polarization um, and why moderates are running less and less often. Yes. And so if you could go back to that original moment and just that little that little dash of polarization that we got for some idiosyncratic reason ended up ultimately taking us to a place where no moderate's willing to run. So this suggests, I mean, we're going to really go off the deep end here, but this suggests that a solution, I mean, there's a coordination problem, right? There's all these moderates yes. around the country and again, our producer is going to get mad at us that we're not providing really compelling evidence. On this. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I mean, you know, there's lots of public opinion data that shows that the public is is their way to the right of Nancy Pelosi and their way to the left of Mitch McConnell. The vast majority of Americans. There's all these moderates around the country. They would all be better off if they could somehow coordinate, right? I mean, you might even imagine a third party basically popping up, a moderate party. I don't know what the right name for them is, but a moderate party popping up. If they could coordinate and they could go recruit candidates in every congressional district and raise money and field a serious race, they would, you know, you could imagine that actually being worthwhile for all of them to do it. But, you know, the, the moderate candidate in our district only wants to do that if, if everyone else is kind of doing the same thing around the country. And now there's going to be a meaningful, they're going to, they're going to win, they're going to win at least, you know, 50 congressional seats and they're going to be a pivotal voting block and they're going to actually have a ton of influence or something like that. Then, then it's all of a sudden worthwhile, right? So we've got this We've got this coordination problem. It's interesting to think about why nobody has done that. It's a good idea. I think somebody should do that. Somebody should get together and raise some money and go out and recruit a slate of moderate candidates and field field a moderate candidate in 
in every congressional district or every congressional district they think is viable. And fully fund them so they don't have to get, you Why know, not? those things yeah. that Andy talks about as, as uh, right. disincentives for moderates to run, we, we can attend to that, right? It's a, it's a set of actually, I think, reasonably straightforward things. Rationalize procedures within Congress such that policymaking can become possible, comma. Reduce the burdens on legislators to fundraise, comma. Reduce the, the media, now this is a hard, this is not a straightforward one, but reduce the gaze, this kind of, this, the level of scrutiny that people who run for office are subject to. Especially scrutiny on non-political, non-policy things, right? I mean, yes. yes. I mean, we actually, we might like more scrutiny on their policy positions. But you know, like uh, we can have full transparency by just looking at how they vote and what bills they sponsor and what kind of fundraising they get and what kind of lobbying they are subject to. We don't really need to you know, listen to them all the time. We don't really need to follow all their rallies and so on to get information. Like, I, I don't think I'm getting really a lot of information from what AOC is saying at some sort of event that she's attending. I'm getting much more information about who she is and how, how much I'm going to like her in Congress if, if I just look at her voting record. I, I don't think it's doable, but I think in, in theory, you would like to completely shut down this sort of non-informational, uh, let's be in the media and talk about what you know, what just some other politician said and how I respond to that story, but we would like to just look at the voting record and the sponsorship record and, and, and that would be enough. So, do you, Viola, have a, a, a bottom line on this book? I think it's a very impressive book. It's just the, the sheer number of different empirical analyses that, that give us interesting stories uh, that Andy uh, conducted and put in the book is, is just impressive. And, and it all, you know, comes together into a coherent story. And I think, you know, we, we put forward a lot of alternative explanations and a lot of alternative stories. And I think, I think all of them have a little bit of, you know, ring of truth in them. But, but I think what is more compelling than the story he put forward. So, so I would, put my finger say, I believe his story, I believe that his story can explain quite a bit of what we are seeing in the data and quite a bit of uh, the polarization that we see in Congress. I really think that this is an excellent book that should be a little bit more maybe featured in, in the public discussions by pundits and, and commentators of, of political polarization. So we're trying to do our part here at yes. the Politics Podcast by featuring yes. it. Um, Yes. Anthony, what about you? Yeah, I think, I think this is a great book. I think this is a great contribution to the field of political science and to this big conversation that we're having about political polarization in America. Um, most political scientists tend to focus their study, you know, like there's a group of scholars who just study voters and they just analyze survey data and they think about, you know, how can we, how can we change voting behavior and how, can, how do they respond to you, things like that. And then there's a pool of people who spend all their time studying what happens inside, you know, Congress, for example, or what happens among elected officials. Let's look at everyone's roll call votes and so on. And I think if you just did either of those two things, you wouldn't you wouldn't actually learn a whole lot about what's going on with political polarization today. And Andy's telling us, you know, we should really spend a lot more time thinking about who runs for office to begin with and what choices are given to voters. Um, that seems to be where a lot of the action is. And that's of course it's of course harder to study that in the sense that you can't just go download the data set of all the people who are considering running for Congress or something like that. Um, and so, but so I think we've got to be pretty, you know, we've got to be pretty clever and innovative going forward and thinking about how we're going to make progress on those questions. But that's, I mean, I, I'm more or less convinced by the book that that's where a lot of the action is. If you really want to understand polarization, we need to think about who runs for office and how can we change 
the incentives for those people to actually get uh, people who are perhaps more representative running. So I, I buy the story, I buy the book, I think it's a great contribution. I think we should think a lot about it going forward as we continue to study study these topics. I completely agree. I mean, I, I would say we could, we can and we should tie it to more than polarization. That is, when we think about proposed reforms to our politics, to our elections, to the internal organization of legislatures and so on, um, most of the conversation fixates on, well, what does this mean for the incentives of people who are already in office? Sometimes there's then a shift to, well, what does this mean for the willingness of people to vote one way or another? But we should have regularly in the mix a set of considerations that center on the willingness of different kinds of people, extremists versus moderates. But then you can imagine, again, along other dimensions, high quality, lower quality, different kinds of people from different kinds of um, communities, their willingness to actually come forward and, and run for office. Um, because the health of our democracy ultimately, I mean, I think really quite persuasively, bears upon our ability to draw out people who are broadly representative of the larger, the, the larger public. Um, and it, it has been a, a puzzle that there has been such a, 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 um, a disjuncture um, in terms of what people uh, want and think and the choices they're actually having to be made. And, and Andy just does a great job of saying, well, a big part of it has to do with who's willing to run. So there we are. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>